The predominant parts of any dietary pattern that is neuroprotective, that is good for the brain, that prevents dementia, are the plants. It's the greens, the beans, the vegetables, especially the cruciferous vegetables like cauliflower, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, the whole grains, nuts and seeds, and avoiding sources of saturated fats that are found in meat, cheese, and dairy products, and even in coconut oil. Getting rid of saturated fats and processed foods and increasing plant-based foods is the ideal way to take care of the brain. So the whole food plant-based diet is the ideal diet for the brain. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen, or a view, or a download, wherever it is in the world that you are. We appreciate you raising your health IQ with us. Today on the show, we are going to be talking about a disease that is affecting an estimated 50 million people around the world. Here in the U.S., it's nearly 6 million, and that number is rapidly rising. We're talking about Alzheimer's disease. And why is it that we're seeing so many new cases? Could it be somehow connected to also the skyrocketing rates of obesity? What about the skyrocketing rates of other chronic diseases? And generally speaking, how does our overall increasingly unhealthy lifestyle factor into this? Well, we are going to find out on the show today. More importantly, we will also be finding out ways to reverse this trend, finding ways to lower the risk of becoming the next person to be diagnosed with such an unforgiving disease. Today, I will be joined by two leading researchers on the topic. Doctors Dean and Aisha Shurzai are here to answer your questions. This is a segment that we did recently on The Exam Room Live on Facebook and on YouTube, where we opened up the doctor's mailbag. Got so many great questions in. Questions regarding the healthiest foods for Alzheimer's disease. And what effect does diabetes have on the progression of Alzheimer's? We know the rate of diabetes is increasing. Does that coincide also correlate with the rates of Alzheimer's disease? And what are the right foods to slow down the progression of the disease? And the question that really stuck with me is just how many of these cases are preventable. We've spoken time and again about cases of breast cancer and other cancers and heart disease, how many of them are preventable. But today on the show, we will quantify the staggering number of dementia-related diseases that are preventable. It is extraordinary how much power we already have in our own hands if we make simple diet and lifestyle changes. So today's show is as much about education as it is inspiration and offering hope to the millions who think that because their family members 
have been diagnosed with Alzheimer's because they've seen their grandparents struggle with the disease. Maybe their own parents struggle with the disease. They think that they then have no other choice but to struggle with the disease for themselves. But it doesn't have to be that way. That's why I am so excited today to be chatting with two of the leading voices in Alzheimer's prevention, Drs. Dean and Aisha Shurzai. Thank you both so very much for joining us and congratulations on the release of this fantastic book. Thank you so much, Chuck, for having us. We're very excited to be here. Let's start kind of with the question that I'm sure that you both get asked quite a bit in your talks, and that is, how much is Alzheimer's dictated by genetics versus diet and lifestyle? That's a great question, Chuck. So um, the percentage of patients with Alzheimer's disease that have that manifestation of the disease that is fully pushed by the genes is only 3, 3%. So 3% of all Alzheimer's disease patients have a very, very strong genetic core to them. The rest of them, 90 plus percent, is based on a polygenic model, uh, which means that there are multiple genes that work together that push people to the point where they start having the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. And when you look at the genes, they're not Alzheimer's genes per se. There are genes for inflammation. There, is, there are genes for responding to oxidative stress. There are genes that are responsible for removing waste byproducts. And when these are taxed with unhealthy lifestyle, they get activated and they can contribute to the damage in the brain. And that's why we know that even when people have a very strong genetic risk for Alzheimer's disease, if they live a healthy life, they can prevent it. And there's been a lot of research done and a lot of evidence out there that shows that when people have a healthy life, even with a genetic burden, they're able to either push the disease far so that they don't develop it early in life or completely avoid it. Would it be an overstatement then to say that if only 3% of the cases are strictly genetically related, then 97% of the cases could be completely avoided? Is that an overstatement? <clears throat> so whenever we talk about this, in, in the book, we said as much as 90% can be prevented. And, and we, we went out of our way to say that this was a data-driven extrapolation, but it was an extrapolation. But it's a fairly accurate ex extrapolation. When, I, when we said 90%, actually, it's more than that, as, you, as, as the numbers uh, Aisha pointed out. Um, the, the data that comes to us from even marginal interventions where they did marginal um, um, uh, partial uh, lifestyle intervention, like the MIND study, 53% reduction in Alzheimer's risk by just implementing a marginal diet-only intervention, 53%. And what if you optimize that diet? Mm -hmm. And, and uh, we'll talk about what optimized diet means and where we came with that optimized diet. And if you add exercise, a Harvard study showed that a 25 minutes of brisk walk every day for a period of time, reduces your chance of Alzheimer's by 45%. So if you add all of those components, plus stress management, plus restorative sleep, plus mental activity, which is incredibly important, we'll talk about what that means, <clears throat> we definitely think that 90% can be achieved. A study from uh, that was published a couple of years ago in Alzheimer's um, uh, Association International Conference 
That was the main plenary talk for 5,000 neurologists specialized in dementia. They said that a optimized life reduces the chance of Alzheimer's by 60%. Their idea of optimized life was not close to what we are talking about. Uh, so we definitely think that it's uh, as much as 90% if somebody lives an optimal life. Let's go ahead and open up that doctor's mailbag and take the first question. It comes to us from Tom. Tom is wondering specifically about food. So you said that diet here plays an enormous role. Um, he wants to know what are the best foods to reduce the risk of developing Alzheimer's and which are the ones that we should be leaving off of the plate altogether? That's a great question, Tom. Thank you. Um, so as far as diet is concerned, you know, people think that nutrition is complicated, but I think we have enough information to show us what path to take. And when you look at different dietary patterns that have been studied in different populations, in observational studies, and even in clinical trials or a case series, whether it's the Mediterranean diet or the mind diet or the dash diet or the prudent diet or the plant-based diet, whatever it is, the predominant parts of any dietary pattern that is neuroprotective, that is good for the brain, that prevents dementia are the plants. It's the greens, the beans, the vegetables, especially the cruciferous vegetables like cauliflower, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, the whole grains, nuts and seeds, and avoiding sources of saturated fats that are found in meat, cheese, and dairy products, and even in coconut oil. Um, so getting rid of saturated fats and processed foods and increasing plant-based foods is the ideal way to take care of the brain. So in our book and in our commentary, we always say a plant-based diet that is unprocessed, a whole food plant-based diet is the ideal diet for the brain. Um, <clears throat> we've worked in a couple of databases. Uh, we, we, we work in Loma Linda University. We actually went to Loma Linda University to study the, the population. And when you look at the Adventist Cell Study, which is one of the largest and longest running studies, 96,000 people over 50 years. And we looked at cognitive tests, specific cognitive tests and the dietary types. Again, the more plant-based, we, we delineated into vegan, healthy vegan, um, a vegetarian, uh, pescatarian, and omnivore. Again, the, the plant-based, the more plant-based, the healthier the brain. When Aisha did work, and we were both on it, but she was the main author. She won the Youngest Researcher Award uh, from our American Heart Association in Mediterranean diet and stroke risk. Mm -hmm. By the way, stroke is a marker of not just that disease, of all vascular disease in the brain. Right. And what was the healthiest diet? It was Mediterranean, yes, by far, 44% reduction of stroke. But what is Mediterranean? Uh, as Aisha always says, what is it? Is it the, you know cheese, wine, uh, nope. gondola? No. The way they scored, and I'll let you tell them, the way they scored is, would bewilder you. Then why do you call it Mediterranean? And, and, and you, you'll be shocked. Yeah, the Mediterranean diet score construct, when you look at it, you get high scores when you consume green leafy vegetables, other vegetables, whole grains, nuts and seeds, legumes, beans, which is the cornerstone of that dietary pattern. And you get a negative score when you consume meat, cheese, or sources of saturated fats. So again, the things that stand out in any dietary patterns are plants. And the more we eat them, the, the lower our risk of cognitive impairment, dementia, and stroke are. And I have to add a couple of things here, Chuck, because I know this probably will be a question, but the question about fat. You guys must have heard from so many different people and some influencers on you know, social media nowadays that the brain is made out of fat, so we have to consume fat to protect it. And that is such a flawed statement. 
It's true, the brain has a lot of fat, but the kind of fat that is in the brain is structural fat, which means that the different layers of the neurons, the coverings of the cells, or the extensions of the neurons in the brain cells, they're covered with, with fat. But these fat are replaced by our body. Our liver makes enough cholesterol, so we don't really have to eat it in, the diet, in a dietary pattern. No saturated fat actually passes through the blood-brain barrier. No cholesterol passes through it. We have enough of that. The only type of fat that the brain uses on a regular basis are omega-3 fatty acids. And we can get it easily from a plant-based diet if we increase our alpha-linoleic sources like chia seeds and flax seeds or hemp seeds or walnuts or, or kale. So we get a wholesome, high-nutrient, uh, dense food products and vitamins and micronutrients from a whole food plant-based diet. And that segues perfectly into Sarah's question, who says that uh, she knows that a lot of people think that fish is a healthy brain food, but in your book, you actually say that it's kind of harmful. So what do we know about fish? Is it truly healthy or is that something to be left off of the plate? <clears throat> we made sure that in the book where we extrapolate, we're clear that we extrapolate with data, of course, we don't just make up, this is my mindset, it's, it's uh, extrapolation. The data on fish is actually, to be honest, there's no data that, that, that it shows that it's bad for you, um, especially fatty fish. But we say that we worry, and, and the only benefit of fish seems to be omega-3. In fact, there, there's never been a study of fish against non-fish omega-3s only. Uh, well, not a validated uh, a proper one. And then uh, fish has always been compared to meat and processed food and all that. Yes, it's beneficial. So we say, yeah, um, fish, there's no data against it, but we worry because inconsistently we check for mercury and lead and maybe PCBs, but majority of those fish out there are not checked. And, and the thousands of chemicals that we've added into the ocean, we never check. So we worry about what that does to the human being over long-term, one. Then if, if fish is, the only thing is the omega-3, why not just skip the middleman and just go to algae-based uh, um, um, uh, omega-3 or other sources of omega-3 that we can get from, uh, like Aisha said, hemp, uh, you know, uh, uh, chia, flaxseed, yeah. and other things, and avoid the toxins that bioaccumulate in, into the fish. So that's the picture of, of the fish story, the accurate one, which we're actually doing. We did... We just submitted two massive uh, comprehensive reviews on omega-3 and developing brain, omega-3 and the aging brain. And now we're doing a study on, 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 uh, fit, uh, on, sorry, not, on oils across the board and the brain. And so far, uh, the fish story is, um, uh, and I'm not going to use that, uh, um, but it's not consistent. And we think that you can skip fish altogether. I know that this is something that you bring up in your book. We have a viewer wondering about coconut oil and why so many people claim that that is healthy for the brain. It's such a misinformation out there. There is we, we actually don't have any evidence that coconut oil is healthy. And the data that comes to us is from, you know, very very small set of people. It actually started with one individual who gave coconut oil to um, her husband. Mm -hmm. And that person apparently got better, but we don't really have any objective evidence of what that essentially means. Um, coconut oil can be very unhealthy because more than 90% of coconut oil is saturated fats. So just saturated fat, if we could eliminate most of it from our diet, that would actually give our brain the right kind of an environment to heal itself and to function properly. Um, and the entire campaign of public health, whether it's from the cardiology world or neurology world or cancer, 
is to reduce saturated fat content in our diet. And coconut fat is a, a coconut oil is a big representative of, of saturated fats. So again, we don't have any data that it's good for the brain. I think it's just delicious and people want to eat more of it. So they've started creating these campaigns, but we do not recommend any coconut oil. For skin right. maybe. Yeah, skin hair. <laughs> it smells good in soaps and you know in, in candles, but not not to consume it. Uh, Will has a question. Will apparently is a funny guy here. Uh, you mentioned kale earlier. He wants to know, is kale the healthiest green in terms of brain health? If not, what are some others that are on the list <clears throat> that will reduce his risk for Alzheimer's? And to take it a step further, he wants to know whether eating kale will help him get on Jeopardy. <laughs> yeah. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Well, yeah. You will uh, probably win the Jeopardy challenge, no? <laughs> but no. Um, so in the book, we've talked about things like Neuro Nine um, and uh, Thoughtful Twenty. And um, uh, let me just say that we, we we go out of our way to kind of then couch that statement by saying, please, do, we're not reductionists. One thing is not going to make you healthier. It's you eat foods mm -hmm. categories. Mm -hmm. How complex. Uh, uh, how many different kinds of foods are you eating that are healthy? That's important. Yeah. And how many how many foods you're eating that are healthy that are replacing unhealthy foods? Right. So although there are some foods that stand out, but I, we, we hate the concept of superfoods and so on and so forth, we talk about the neuro nine in the sense that if you take these nine categories every day, you should be fine. But so even there, don't be a reductionist. And the neuro nine are, let's check Aisha's memory. <laughs> Early in the morning. Yeah. So the neuro nine, so uh, just, just to kind of way, add I, a little bit. The reason I passed it on to Aisha because I couldn't go through, so yeah. The, 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 I, I wanted to add to it. Any green that you eat and you love is the healthiest green for you. Uh, you know, anything that you can actually adhere to is the best <clears> thing for you. Food is about enjoying it. And if you choose a plant-based food that is from that category, that's good enough. Um, so the neuro nine, not to sound too gimmicky about it, but you know, when when we look at dietary patterns, when you look at um, uh, inflammatory indices, so you know, diets that have the most uh, anti-inflammatory components are essentially these: greens, beans, whole grains berries especially blackberries and blueberries oh my goodness cruciferous vegetables like cauliflower kale. broccoli kale which is a cruciferous vegetable actually instead of a green then we have nuts and seeds and we have spices like turmeric and paprika and oregano herbs and spices and like it can be fresh and then the last one <clears> is tea we actually have evidence that people who drink green tea or oolong tea or decaffeinated tea, if they have high blood pressure or they have some problem with, you know, arrhythmias or and anxiety. anxiety, they should get rid of all the caffeine. But tea is an amazing thing. That's why we have our tea right here. This is a great question from Tina. Uh, she's wondering if 50 is too late to start implementing a lot of the changes that you talk about in the book, or if your fate is essentially sealed at that point, if you've already done five decades worth of damage to the brain? No, it's never too late to start lifestyle. Uh, it's never too late to include healthy uh, components to your lifestyle. We actually have, you know, as a scientist, I always say we have 
objective evidence. We have studies that show that when people in their 50s start exercising, for example, there was one study that showed that people who already had mild cognitive impairment, which is the pre-Alzheimer's state, when they started exercising, doing strength training. Leg strength in particular. Leg strength in particular, so lunges and squats, 47% of them were able to reverse their disease and become completely normal. <clears throat> we have studies from uh, the London taxi driver study where at in their 50s, when they started learning and really challenging their minds, their brain actually grew bigger. We have studies that show that when people change their dietary patterns, they're able to reverse their high blood pressure, reverse their cholesterol levels, reverse their diabetes. And these are all markers for dementia and stroke. So no, it's never too late. There is a point of no return. And this is important for us because um, there are people making claims, even in our plant-based world, that they can reverse Alzheimer's, fulminant Alzheimer's. And that's unethical. Um, I know that if, if somebody makes that claim, they're going to sell millions of books, but that's not right. That's, that's unethical. Once the, the full ravages of Alzheimer's has settled in, you may be able to slow it down with comprehensive lifestyle, but there is a plus or minus there. The amount of change in a situation where a person is already in the thralls of Alzheimer's is, is itself questionable for the amount of gain, but, uh, but reversing it, no. Uh, but anything before, we're talking about even at the MCI stage, mild cognitive impairment stage, right before the, the disease fully manifests, absolutely there's evidence um, that, that, that can be affected, influenced, and reversed. Well, let's say that somebody does have Alzheimer's. They have a loved one who they want to help uh, with, but you were just talking about implementing these changes can be kind of a risky proposition if somebody's, you know, pretty far along in, in the stages here. Uh, but Charlie does have a question. Uh, what is the best way to introduce these changes and healthier foods to someone <laughs> who already does have dementia? Yeah. So it's always, uh, uh, you know, for us, um, ethics, uh, human ethics is about autonomy. Um, there's a whole thing we can talk about that. So does the person want to make those kind of massive changes? Um, if let's say they're, they're not, they've never exercised, they've never eaten healthy and so on and so forth. Um, uh, would they have wanted that? Uh, is, do they have the faculties at that point with full Alzheimer's to make that kind of decision? And is it up to us to make that massive change at a time where their life is, you know, under attack? Um, so that's an ethical issue. I've thought about that for years since I've seen all I see is dementia patients. It's a much longer conversation. Uh, autonomy is important. It's uh, so uh, even if the person is not able to say what they feel, what would they, ha they have made? Uh, what decision would they have made if, if they had their full faculties? So it's a very complex uh, question for the rest of us. Absolutely. It's about small incremental behavior change, a diet changes don't work um uh, new year resolution exercise programs don't work small measurable attainable chunks of behavior change that you can check off that you can see creates a dopamine surge that becomes habit that becomes character that becomes in a family culture mm -hmm. so that's how we would start for everybody else and Shelby has a question wants to know what effect diabetes has on the progression of alzheimer's disease Oh, um, immense, 
uh, diabetes has an incredible negative effect on the pathological changes that are seen in Alzheimer's disease. Uncontrolled uh, diabetes. Uncontrolled right? diabetes, yes. But even pre-diabetes and people who have insulin resistance um, actually have poor cognitive state. We did a research on that a couple of years ago, and it's been published on PubMed. And we, in a large population, the enhanced population, we wanted to see what was the association of insulin resistance and cognitive state. And when people had insulin resistance, they had lower cognitive state. And it makes sense. When there is insulin resistance in the body and peripheral insulin resistance actually translates into central peripheral resistance. And glucose is the preferred fuel for every brain cell. And if our brain cells are not able to use that fuel because of internal damage, because of the pathological changes, abnormal proteins, internalization of insulin receptors, the, the brain cells actually just starve. So we're still doing a lot of research to understand how it manifests, but we know from large databases and from other lines of studies that when people have unmanaged diabetes or prediabetes, that can really affect their memories, their processing speed, their judgment and brain health in general. Here's an interesting question from Anna. We were talking a little bit about exercise earlier, and she's wondering how high intensity exercise compares to more moderate exercise in terms of reducing Alzheimer's risk. It's, right. it's better. I mean, high intensity exercise is better. There was a time when um, we didn't have uh, a good understanding of the nuance of exercise and its effect in the brain, but we do now. People who engage in intense activities actually have better outcomes as far as disease is concerned compared to those who have moderate. But I don't want to actually put down moderate exercise either. We have you know, evidence from the Framingham Heart Study that showed that when people engage in a 20-minute brisk walk, just 20 minutes 20, of brisk walk yeah. or 25 minutes of brisk walk in the morning, they were able to reduce their risk of Alzheimer's disease by 45%. That's huge. And we don't know of any medicine that does that. So um, what we say is do whatever you can, do whatever you enjoy. Moderate exercise is great. If you can do high intensity exercise, that's even better. Uh, one little nuance to that. We worry a little bit about brain trauma. That's right. <clears throat> and I don't mean just hitting your head high impact high impact yeah. uh, boxing you know um, um martial arts where you know choking and all of that stuff it's not inconsequential let's be honest i mean a lot of times people want to say things that are politically correct and, and it's it, it is consequential but this brain we have this solid this is a heavy one this is not the real brain is a lot lighter than this three pounds <clears throat> and a lot softer than this it's almost like a hard jello and it's in a bony skull um it's bony ridges um, uh, especially the temporal lobe with the memory centers right in front of it, there are bony ridges. And what, uh, what the, the fluid that the brain is in is not a viscous fluid. It's actually very, it's watery like. So even, you know, things like for soccer players who had the ball a lot, there's evidence that over time there's uh, some, uh, some concussive uh, changes. But other activities that deal with a lot of jarring in the brain, we worry about. Now that's, the data is coming to us. The data is not fully vetted, and but mechanistically it makes sense. And then extrapolation from other sports that now are creeping in, as far as the data shows, shows sense makes sense. So we love uh, long-term, low-impact, but high-intensity uh, exercises. Now, if I exercise, there are three components. Aerobic is extremely important mm -hmm. for for getting the blood moving to the more than four hundred miles of vasculature in the brain. This is the most vascular organ. 
The second thing is leg strength. All strengthening exercise is important because of its effect on BDNF and, and all of that. But leg strength seems to be exponentially beneficial. And by that, I don't mean weight bearing, but even simple squats and things that, and stairs and biking and things of that, that nature that are low impact on the knees. So be aware of that. But leg strength seems to be important, not just for the brain, but even later on in life. The number one reason people end up in the hospital later is falls. And, and leg strength seems to have a very positive effect on that. And third, create a life around your work and your home where you're less sedentary. Yeah. So you're moving more, you're standing more, you're stretching more. Um, and those three things, have that in mind. And that would be an incredible effect. In our program, the first change that we want people to make, is, as much as we, we are both you know, masters in nutrition and nutritionists and culinary artists and all that, is actually exercise because the response you get from exercise is quicker mm -hmm. and the dopamine surge is quicker. I don't mean the runner's high. I mean, just the act of accomplishment and the feeling you get because of the heart rate and the pulse and, and the breath. Um, so exercise is critically important around those three areas. And that goes right into a question that we have from Richard. He's wondering kind of this holy trinity of, of Alzheimer's prevention. When you have sleep, you have diet, and you have exercise. Of those three, is it even possible to rank them in terms of importance? Um, um, yes. Stress management. <laughs> uh, and yes, actually a bigger one mental activity right so it's not, you cannot do one without the other you need all of them both of our grandparents which is what was the driving force right. for for us going into this in fact 18 years ago our first conversation was about our grandparents which were amazing human beings who died from alzheimer's they had the cognitive reserve the brain reserve or cognitive reserve which is incredibly important probably one of the most important things right. which is, comes from constant brain challenge in every study in every valid study they actually control for education as that cognitive reserve but mm -hmm. it's not a good measure it's an easy measure you can ask people you did four years of college you did you know what that's an easy way. but it's not about that how much have you challenged your brain and for how long and that's protected because it makes those connections but they died with alzheimer's because their food was terrible and they never moved others you know, they move and they have good nutrition, but they never challenge their brain. In right. fact, we think that a huge population that's coming to us now in their 80s, um, uh, they are at risk for dementia because during those 80 years ago or 70 years ago, they they were ostr or they were separated, so they couldn't challenge their brain. Yeah. So that so all of them are important and depends on your journey where you are. As a so. matter of fact, you lower your risk of Alzheimer's disease the more you include these elements. So, you know, and there was actually a study that showed that from five factors, five lifestyle factors, if people adhere to one or two, yeah, they lowered their risk by a certain percentage. But if they adhere to all five of them, they actually reduce their risk to the maximum level. So it doesn't matter what it is. It matters how much of it you do. And I think a comprehensive, multifaceted, meaning including all of these elements into your life is very important for staving off this devastating disease. So that we don't disempower people. They're saying, oh my God, I got to do everything. No, start with one, win that battle, get that dopamine surge, go to the next, to the next, to the next. Or, and that's or include one element from each of them. One element right. from each of them. Yes. Start right. with kale. <laughs> <It's a> kale. <laughs> 
Well, that, that's, yeah, it's good that you bring that up because we do have a couple of people who are watching right now who are wondering about if they can't exercise because they have a disability. We have one person in particular who says that they are in a wheelchair and what can they do is eating a, a clean diet good enough. What are some other recommendations that you might have for them? So most, most we, definitely. yeah, we yeah. get these patients a lot who are wheelchair. We say that the body is a closed system. Whatever you do in the upper extremity can help the lower extremity. Let's say that you can, you have the use of your hands. We love these foot pedal exercisers. In fact, I said, if I was secretary the one, of health. The one that goes under the table, they're like little small foot pedal exercises. Yeah. I said that if, 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 if you were, if I was secretary of health and human services or more likely Aisha, we would actually connect every TV to a foot pedal exerciser. So it's not working unless they're moving the, uh, the foot pedal. But if you if your lower extremity is, is affected by paralysis or um, some other problem, then you bring it, you can put it on the table on, and then use the upper extremity. It's a closed system. Yeah. It's exercise and do that. that. Now, let's say if you can't even do that, then yes, taking care of other elements do does help. Mm -hmm. um, having better nutrition, right. um, uh, stress management, better sleep hygiene, and mental activity definitely helps significantly. Let's uh, take care of a little bit of housekeeping here and, and get a little more clarity on these answers. David is wondering if you could give us uh, your definition for what high intensity exercise is. Yeah. So high intensity exercise um, has a very um, objective um, explanation or definition, and it can it can have a very rough, you know, just regular um, definition too. Um, what we say is, you know, I don't think we need to go ahead and measure our heart rate and a metabolic rate and divide that with our BMI, so on and so forth. There's really no need. An exercise or an activity is considered high intensity if you break a sweat and if you have difficulty finishing a sentence when you're doing it. That's high intensity. We recommend people doing that, but again, it, it just depends on their capacity, um, how much they can do it, whether they can do it or not because of physical disability. Um, any movement is better than not moving at all. Yeah, I mean, in the, in the lab, in the clinic, in, in research, you have these uh, uh, masks, VO2 masks. VO2 yeah. masks that people measure, uh, put on. Uh, they measure the heart rate, they measure a uh, metabolic rate, all of that stuff. That's not necessary. Yeah. If you're getting tired and short of breath and have difficulty finishing a yeah, sentence, that's, it. that's, yeah. that's good enough at, at, at home. And Lynette is wondering, you've spoken about uh, challenging your brain. She's wondering if you could give some more specifics on ways to do that. Uh, my guess is that she's maybe referring to maybe crossword puzzles or something like that. Yeah. Um, we Crossword puzzles are fine. Um, uh, uh, Sudoku is fine, although I hate Sudoku. Um, but 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 uh, it's a personal. It's thing. a personal thing. It's a personal. I was yeah. In any case, um, uh, you're opening up a can of worms. I know. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but what what is important? We did a meta analysis. You guys can find it in PubMed. Uh, I was I was the uh, main of uh, the uh, PI on that. Uh, cognitive activity and, um, and cognitive games and mental health in, in MCI patients. This is These are people who are pre-dementia. So we gathered all the data from all the other scientists and did an analysis. And at the core is three elements, um, uh, purpose, um, um, challenge, and complexity. So <clears throat> purpose means pick activities, not one, but several activities that you like or you think you will like for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. And Make them complex. Complex means that real life activities, not so much contrived activities. Yeah, you can like a video game or you can like, you know, something like that. But 
but the real life activities like uh, playing a musical instrument, um, art, um, uh, taking classes, learning how to dance, um, uh, leading a group, um, managing a team, managing a company that you like, or could take the parts that you like. And that comes, that actually comes from good stress, bad stress, which is a whole talk we have on that. And, and then, um, come, uh, or, or volunteering right. a, a group of friends who play cards uh, together, but it's more, more thoughtful cards like poker, which, which I'm not very good at, but it, it's a mind challenging at times. And all of these things are complex activities, some more than the other. Mm -hmm. But if you think about it, they all involve multiple domains of the brain. The example I give is guitar. I've, I've played the guitar for years and years. And as everybody knows in the- Chuck the, knows. Yeah, I'm terrible <laughs> at it. Yeah, I'm terrible at it. And, and, and no, uh, the not. neighbors know this, uh, but I like it. I love it. I want to get better at it. So when you're playing a musical instrument, you look, you're reading the notes. That's your left parietal lobe for majority. We're left brain centered language wise for most, not everybody. Um, you're being creative. It's your right parietal for the most part. You're processing the information. It's your frontal lobe. You're visually processing it's your occipital lobe. You're emotionally engaged. It's your limbic system. Mm -hmm. You're being dexterous. It's your cerebellum and your motor cortex. That's not Sudoku. That's your entire brain being challenged. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, uh, that's complex. And challenge means, let's say you get a good at, at a song like uh, Yesterday from Beatles. Yeah. You know, my, yeah. my, my family has seizures every time we talk about the Yesterday because I play that. <laughs> now, now that after a while, it becomes reflex, right? So you're not challenging. Go to the next song. Go to the next chord uh, progression. Go to the next thing. If it's dancing, if you play the same, you know, do the same four moves, it gets really old. <laughs> Go to a more complex dance, take classes. You know, in medical school, I hated histology. Um, and, 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 and that's it. But let's say now I take classes that I love. I mean, we are perpetual students. Right. Uh, we, have, we have friends say that you have more degrees than a thermostat. It's, it's not for the degree, it's <laughs> It's about continually challenging yourself. So now taking art history, you know, um, uh, philosophy, music uh, theory. Music theory. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Uh, no, master class. So that's actually mental challenge. Right. Here's a very cool one. A lot of people, we push and push and we say, be honest with yourself. We watch TV. Okay, great. So you watch um, uh, um, uh, this this show, um, Blue. Uh, what is this? I mean, this cop show, um, oh. uh, something. So you watch a yeah. cop show. With now watch it with intention with friends or family. Right. So you're going to pay attention to the details. Not just the central characters, the, the peripheral characters, the location, all that. And afterwards, challenge yourself to recall those elements. Yeah. And maybe doing that, you'll get to, um, you know, uh, Jeopardy. But, but that's <laughs> actually real life complex activities that challenge the brain. And more importantly, you bring brain building activities into real life, not contrived out of real life behaviors, which work for a while, but then you settle down to real life. All right, let's go ahead and uh, grab two more here before we close up the doctor's mailbag. This is an important one that comes to us from Julie. She writes, what effect can COVID-19 and quarantining have on Alzheimer's patients? She says that her mom is isolated and she hasn't been able to visit her in person since the beginning of the pandemic. And she wants to know whether or not eating a little bit healthier may be able to help her mom out as well in this case. 
It's been devastating. Um, the effect of COVID and this isolation and loneliness on patients who are already suffering from Alzheimer's disease, it's, it's one of the most painful things we've ever seen. Um, and I agree. Um, there's, you know, there's only so much that one can do. Hopefully it's going to get better from here on. But, um, the key should be to, uh, keep in touch with that loved one, no matter what. If we can't meet with them face-to-face, -face, a call, a conversation, any kind of verbal stimulation to have them speak with us, to be connected with us, for them not to feel lonely is very important. We actually did a podcast episode on this entire topic of how COVID is affecting patients with Alzheimer's mm -hmm. disease. And the solution, it may be different for different people, yes, emphasis more on the things that we have control over, whether it's nutrition, exercise or movement, or keeping one's mind active with some activities. But the most important thing is pick up a phone and call the loved one or arrange for a meeting from a distance, anything that would actually stimulate them to have a conversation. For a lot of Alzheimer's disease patients, their family members or familiar faces are the only islands of consciousness that they are linked to. And they relate everything else in their life uh, as a reference to the people they know, the faces they recognize, and the stories that they remember. So keeping those alive, keeping those moving by reconnecting them, by reminding them of the stories or reminding them of the faces is important. And we There's have no a lot of people... We have a lot of people wondering as we kind of uh, get to the finish line here, uh, wondering about spices. Specifically, they want to know your thoughts on sage and saffron. What do you guys think about those? Spices in general are phenomenal because pound for pound, they have the most anti-inflammatory compounds in them. And we have studies showing that people who consume more spices actually do very well cognitively. Um, I'm not going to get into very specifics. I mean, whether it's sage or saffron or rosemary or thyme, we have some small studies turmeric. that show that they're very good. The one that keeps coming back over and over again is turmeric. Uh, Dean and I have actually done research on that. We were the principal investigators of a study in Cedar sinai where we gave people curcumin, which is a component of turmeric in high doses, and it bound to the amyloid beta protein, which is a bad protein associated with Alzheimer's disease. And we could see it in their retina, the retina being an extension of the brain. And what it does is apparently turmeric or curcumin specifically has a, a capacity to decrease the load of beta amyloid in the brain. We're actually studying more about it. We're learning more about it, but that's the effect of spice on the brain. Mm -hmm. So yes, sage is great. Saffron is phenomenal. If you can add spices to your foods, to your beverages, um, that would be amazing. And we end with this one really quickly. This is an important one. Everybody's going to be hanging on your answer for this. A question from Sarah. She writes, a friend of mine told me that chocolate is good for the brain. Is this true? Uh, yes and no. It, so <laughs> it's actually, well, the kind of chocolate people think it's, it's not. No. Yeah, it's not We're, the candy bars. No, yeah. it's, it's the, the dark chocolate, the cocoa. Uh, itself is definitely there's there's plenty of evidence for cocoa being beneficial um so yes add cocoa to everything uh it, there is evidence for benefit its benefits be it anti-inflammatory antioxidant and pretty powerfully to be it for to be uh, to be exact so cocoa absolutely um you can sweeten it with uh things like um applesauce uh, bananas berries and in this date, book we actually powder. and date powder or date pulverized oh. date we have a lot of great recipes that have 
cacao powder in them and you know you don't really feel any deprivation of not eating a chocolate bar but yeah like dean said <laughs> these yes, are the sir. energy bars with the, with the cocoa nibs in there but yes yeah, so uh, including cacao or cocoa powder without the saturated fats and without all the unhealthy fats is is the way to go because they have a lot of phenomenal ingredients that really fight inflammation in the brain <laughs> Dean is pulling uh, up all these cacao recipes in the book. <laughs> that list of sweeteners, uh, it was not lost on me that you did not have white refined sugar on there. So uh, I'm no, guessing no, that there's no. not a lot of that in the book. No, no there's none. Not, not of it. There's none. We, we want to make sure that we stay away from refined sugar as much as possible because it, it's the source of inflammation and, and damage to the brain. Well, there you go. And what you should not stay away from is their new book, The 30-Day <laughs> Alzheimer's Solution. It is phenomenal. And in the show description right now, you will find a link to pick up your copy at Amazon, or you can pop into your local bookstore and pick up a copy as well. Uh, Doctors Dean and Aisha Shurzai, thank you both so very much. Congratulations on the release of the book. It is absolutely phenomenal. And I cannot thank you enough for taking some time to hang out with us here on the exam room today. I just want to add something. When people purchase the book, all the funds and the profits go to the Healthy Minds Initiative, which is a non-for-profit. And the sole purpose of the Healthy Minds Initiative is to start conversations about healthy minds in different communities and train individuals to become brain health ambassadors in their own community. So when you purchase this book, you're actually supporting the Healthy Minds Initiative, and we're grateful to you for that. And I want to end with a very important neurological term, concept. We believe in strongly. Chuck, we love you and your journey and everything you've we done. We love you, Chuck. Thank you so much for everything you're doing. Thank you both so very much. You you are true do-gooders in this world. You are welcome back on the show anytime. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you scroll down to the episode notes, you will find a link to pick up a copy of the 30-day Alzheimer's solution by the Shurzais. Pick that right up on Amazon, and I highly recommend it. Not just because it has the recipe for that incredible cake that we were talking about and the chocolate dishes that we were talking about, but because it is filled with a wealth of information, more than we could possibly have gotten to on today's episode. And this information, this research, you might as well say that it is hope. It is hope for a brighter future. It is hope. That even though your grandparents may have had this disease, your parents may have had this disease, your uncles, your aunts, maybe even your brothers and sisters, that does not have to be you. There are steps that you can take to lower your risk. Remember what Dr. Dean Shurzai said at the top of the show. He said only 3% of Alzheimer's cases are really tied to genetics. We have so much more power than we realize, and that power is hope, and it is inspiration, and that's why I am so thrilled that we were able to do this show today, and I highly encourage you to continue to do research with this book, The 30-Day Alzheimer's Solution, so go ahead and pick up your copy. And also coming up later this summer, July 15th through 17th, will be the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine, where we will also be continuing this discussion. Dr. Pooja Agarwal 
will be presenting on the relation of nutrition with cognitive and motor outcomes in older adults. Didn't get too much into detail today about motor outcomes here, but we will get into that in depth at ICNM. So if you would like to register for ICNM, this year's conference, it's completely online. All you need to do is head over to pcrm.org slash ICNM to register. And if you act now, you can get a significant savings. If you act by May 3rd, you will save significantly off the cost of regular admission. More than 30 speakers will be presenting the latest research this year. We've got topics on type 2 diabetes and how to present that. Dr. Alan Desmond, our friend here, he will be presenting this year, talking about diet and the gut microbiome and bowel cancer. And what should doctors be telling your patients about all of this? He'll be presenting on that. We're also going to be hearing from someone who is going to be presenting the latest research on the effect that having a dog in your house, how that can improve your health. It's pretty interesting stuff that we don't often talk about here on the show. We also have one from Dr. Robert Osfeld, another friend of the exam room. And he's, he's a funny guy. His presentation is Erectile Function and Lifestyle, The Long and Short of It. <laughs> he never ceases to make me laugh. So if you would like to get in on this, 30 speakers this year and continuing education credits are available. So sign up today, pcrm.org slash ICNM. And you don't have to be a doctor or a nurse or a dietitian or a pharmacist to attend. You can just have a keen interest in your own health and get the benefits. So go ahead and register today. You will find a link to do that in the episode notes. Again, if you act by May 3rd, you can lock in a significant savings. And if you happen to be a food for life instructor or a medical student, you can also save big right now. PCRM.org slash ICNM to register. And we hope to see you there. And I also hope that you found today's show very useful. I hope that you are walking away feeling empowered. I hope that you are walking away knowing that you have so much control over your health fate. The power is in the palm of your hand and it's on your plate. And so now that you have this knowledge, now that you know that it quite literally can save a life, why not help to save the life of someone else? And one of the easiest ways you can do that is by subscribing to the exam room by the Physicians Committee on Apple Podcast or Spotify, wherever shows are available. And when you subscribe, please also leave a five-star rating and a nice review because every new five-star rating and subscription and nice review helps to get this information to those who need it the most. And I am so serious when I say that. It's not just about boosting our numbers. The reason why we want these new subscriptions is because quite frankly, the more we get, the more podcast providers are inclined to bump up the show on their nutrition podcast page. And so we want it right at the top so that people can discover this information as easily as possible when they need it the most. And I thank you in advance for helping us save a life.
And that's going to do it for us today. I want to say thank you one more time to the phenomenal powerhouse duo, Doctors Dean and Aisha Shurzai, for joining us here on The Exam Room. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, stay safe, take a stand, and keep it plant-based.